Thanks, guys. Good to be with you this morning. This is the week that we say happy birthday, America. Uh, Independence Day, as we often know. And we have set another world's record this year. And so when you look at America, where we are this year, um, it's, it's really kind of intriguing because, l- let me set it up this way. This world records we have, do you know what the average length of a governing document in the history of the world is? Over the 5,500 years recorded history, the average length of a governing document is 17 years. This year, we celebrated 244 birthdays under the same piece of paper. No other nation in the history of the world has been as stable as we've been, as prosperous as we've been, has as much creativity in relation. Hands down, nobody's even close to that. Having said that, with all that we have to be thankful and grateful for, we live in an era where that we really don't appreciate what we have. Truth has become a real problem in the culture. Um, we don't tell the truth very well. We don't recognize the truth very well. It tends to be very subjective. Uh, in a very real way, truth has come under fire in a way that we've not seen it before. And without trying to make this melodramatic or, melodramatic or use hyperbola, we, we really, truth is on life support. And, and the reason I say that is current polling. We do a lot of polling nationally, involved in a lot of polling, work with a lot of pollsters. Right now in America, we know that as we are here today in America, just two weeks ago, polling is out, that only three in five Americans believe that there is absolute truth. Everything else is subjective. So, or three in five don't believe that. Only two in five Americans believe that there is absolute truth that you can know. Everything else is up to me. I determine my own truth. I, I can define my own truth. Um, it is even more with millennials. It's four out of five with millennials. And then with Christians, it's still one out of two. So if truth is not absolute, then I guess the Ten Commandments means the Ten Suggestions to those folks. God does have absolute truth. We've known that for years. We have natural laws. We, we have God's laws. We have all sorts of laws that are fixed, but we don't recognize that anymore. And so the result of all this has been that we now have objective truth. It really doesn't matter what truth says. We can see this in a lot of areas. Um, you look, for example, at what happens with gender. For 5,500 years, there were two genders in the, in the world. Two years ago, we stopped counting genders because legally they had gone over 90 different genders now recognized in America. So how do you get over 90? Well, that's why we stopped counting because anything you define yourself as, that's your gender now. You can, you can choose from any combination. You can make up your own. We also have difficulty with religions. All religions are equal. They're all good. All paths go to heaven. Uh, we see that particularly with there's no absolute truth even among Christians. And as you look at Christians in the nation, Particularly over the last 10 years, the number of Christians has really plummeted. And when you look at why, here's what we find out. We find out that among Christians, 80% of Christians believe that religions other than Christianity will get you to heaven. Now, that's a problem among Christians. When Christians don't even recognize that God has one way to heaven, and he makes it really clear in the scriptures, and that way is through Jesus Christ, it's a problem. So continuing the polling, uh, 52% of Christians believe that a belief in Islam will get you to heaven. Uh, 53% believe that a belief in Hinduism will get you to heaven. 42% believe that a belief in atheism, you don't even believe in God, you're going to make heaven. Uh, 56% believe that a belief in no religion at all will get you to heaven. And this is among Christians. So we come to the point where any road's going to get you to heaven. Whatever, whatever you believe, if you're a nice, good person, you're going to get there. And so we have this difficulty with 
religion, we have the same difficulty with the government. Of all the different governments in the world, whatever you choose is fine. They're all good. They all work equally well. No, they don't. We have 5,500 years of recorded history, what works and what doesn't. But that's out the door. Education, we no longer have internationally normed tests. We have now gone to state norm tests so that we can cook the books and make our kids look better than the other states. And so we're changing the standards on that. We no longer have objective testing as we had. Uh, morality. Uh, I worked with George Barna. We produced a book called U-Turn that goes through the current state of morality in America. And on a hundred different moral categories, statistically, we can find no difference between the behavior of Christians and non-Christians in a hundred different moral categories. And whether that be adultery or lying, whether it be uh, physical violence, anything else, we can't tell the difference between Christians and non-Christians anymore because everybody defines their own morality. We have the same thing with history. We kind of pick and choose the history we want. We ignore what we don't like or we rewrite it or we say it didn't happen. Um, same with science. We can all look at the same scientific evidence and come out with two opposite opinions now because my opinion is more important than what the evidence might say. The same with economics. Um, there are 5,500 years we've had economic systems in the world, and we know the one that works the least is socialism. And yet today in America, 75% of college students prefer socialism over the free market, 69% of millennials, and 41% of all Americans. It defies everything in history. It doesn't matter. That's what I think will work. That's what I think truth is. And socialism is going to be a great system. Ethics is the same way. We kind of make and choose all this stuff, so we no longer have the standards that we had. And this is something that's happened really in the last decade or so, particularly that's become visible. So truth, in fact, now is given way to personal opinion. What I believe and what my truth is is more important than what your truth is or what objective fact says. I get to make my own opinion on so many areas. And so love of truth for a Christian, actually for everybody, love of truth should be the, the ultimate objective. But for Christians especially, there's a great passage out of the scriptures where the, in the scriptures, when you look at Second uh, uh, Thessalonians 2, verses 1 through 12, it goes to this thing of comparing lies and truth. And that there's a lawless faction out there and there's a truth faction out there. And God's children are supposed to be children of truth. And there's the lawless, the, the man of lawlessness is called. And it's interesting that as you go through that passage and look at how God lays this out, in verses 10 through 12, there is a sequence of what happens if you don't follow truth, if you don't love truth, if you don't embrace truth. Even if truth is difficult for you and it, changes, it forces you to change your life, you have to have a love for truth. And this is what happens if you don't have a love for truth. If you look in verse 10, it says, they did not receive the love of the truth. In other words, that wasn't the number one thing for them. And for me... Love of the truth should be it. And if that means that I'm wrong and I have to acknowledge I'm wrong and I have to change, that's all right. I want, I want truth more than I want to be right. And so truth is the objective. But because they did not receive the love of the truth, because they didn't love the truth more than anything else, it says, for this reason, God will send them a strong delusion. Now, notice we're starting in a sequence of steps here. If we don't have a love for the truth, reject it because I don't agree with it, then you get into a delusion. And it says next that they should believe the lie. So you go from rejecting truth to a delusion to now believe in a lie. And then verse 12 says that they all might be damned who believe not the truth. And this is King James. Damned in this sense just means condemned or judged. So if you look at the sequence of what happens in this passage, it starts with, I don't love truth or I reject truth. I don't care what your truth is. I think there are 487 different genders. You can think there's two, but you're wrong. Now, I'm going to receive, if I don't love truth or if I reject truth, and genders is just one area. I mean, there's so many dozens of areas we could pick. If I don't love or if I reject the truth, 
then delusion enters. And once delusion enters, then I'll start believing that lie, that delusion. And as a result, I'll act on that lie, which has a very high consequence and a very high cost to myself. It really becomes self-destructive. So if we don't have a love for the truth, we get into a sequence where we blink, believe the wrong stuff, we'll act on it, and then it's going gonna, it's gonna to have a, a serious consequence. So when you look at what happens with the love of the truth, in this era now where truth has become so relative in so many areas, you look at science. Let me just give you an example how ridiculous this is if you take the area of science. And science is an area of natural law. Uh, we're told back in, in Job that God has created the laws of the heavens. And so we know that scientific law is there. And take something as simple as gravity. And if you take gravity and look at gravity, it is the laws of gravity. It's not the opinions of gravity. It is the law of gravity because it never changes. There's no circumstance in which gravity does not have, have that law at place. But let's say that I reject that. I don't think it applies to me. I can, I can define my own science. I can do what I want with science. I really don't care what you say. And by the way, this is a new era. We have so much technology. This stuff is thousands of years old. It's time to move on and get something different. And so I'm going to reject the law of gravity. I'm going to reject the truth about that. And so this is the way my thinking goes on that. I'm going to start with the premise that there is no law of gravity. I'm just tired of it. I, you can believe in it if you want to. I don't believe in it. So I don't think there's a law of gravity. The next step will be it doesn't affect me. Since there is no law of gravity, I'm not bound by the law of gravity. And since I'm not bound by the law of gravity, well, I can do what I want. And I have always wanted to be able to jump off a building and soar. And so I will jump off that building and soar all the way to my death. When I hit the ground on the bottom, I'm going to die. Now, what happens is, notice the sequence that goes here. It's that same sequence. Reject the truth. A delusion enters. You believe the delusion. You act on the delusion. There are consequences to it. We see the same thing in the area of our faith. I've already given you some polling on, on where we are as Christians with faith. If you take what the Bible says, we're told, Jesus tells us in John 14, 6, he says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by me. Now, that's a claim of exclusivity. There's no other way to heaven except through Jesus Christ. Well, I don't believe that. I, I, I disagree with that. Well, Jesus has made it. And by the way, if as 80% of Christians believe there are other ways to heaven, then Jesus dying was a complete waste. Jesus did not need to die if you can get to heaven any other way. So the fact that he came and died is an indication that God says there's only one way and it's my son. So this is a claim of exclusivity. Now, we also have the apostles repeating that in Acts 4.12. There's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we can be saved. So this is the exclusive way to get to heaven is through Jesus Christ. But let's say that I don't believe that. I don't, I don't agree with that. I don't, I don't think Jesus is the only way. I think I'm a good person. I can do things that will get me there. I can believe anything I want. As you saw in the polling, we can believe all other religions are all going to get us. So I reject the truth that Jesus is the only way. So we go through the same sequence. I believe there's no exclusive way to heaven. Therefore, there are many ways to heaven. And there's a whole lot of options out there. And if there's many ways to heaven, I can choose my own path to heaven. I'll, I'll choose what I want. And so I make my choice, whatever that's going to be. And as a result, I will end up literally in hell. Now, again, the same sequence that goes with this, doesn't matter how sincere you are. If you reject truth, delusion enters, you'll believe a lie, you'll act on the lie, and there is a cost to you of that. Now, the question becomes, 
Please, and, and by the way, it doesn't matter what area. I, I showed you faith. I showed you science. But you can take any area. You can take the area of morality. I don't believe in old morals. I, there's new morality. I'll make my own. Doesn't matter. You violate a certain law, you're going to pay a price for it. So it doesn't matter what area you reject truth. If you reject, reject truth in the area of politics or history or government, if you reject in the area of science or economics, it doesn't matter. There are certain fixed truths that go with all of that. So why is it that someone would believe a lie? Well, generally, there's three reasons why people would believe a lie, or, that is, to reject truth. Those three reasons are they don't know what the truth is. And this is a situation that we really have with America today. Uh, education is so bad that we don't cover truth. It's not an emphasis. Over the summertime, we have programs, leadership training programs, where we take 18 through 25-year-olds that are going into college, they're in college, or they're in graduate work. And we know what's taught in college. I, I've been appointed in a number of states by state boards of education to write the history and government standards in those states. Very involved in education. We do a lot of work with education, both in litigation, all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, as well as with legislation. We have about a thousand legislators in our network. And so we deal a whole lot with, with education. And I can tell you right now, a whole lot of truth is not being taught in a lot of areas. It's just, it's really easy to measure statistically, but it's possible not to know the truth. And this is a, and I'm going to get into some areas to show you where the today, what we think is truth really isn't historically. So you don't know the truth or you don't like the truth. Well, I don't care I, that I'm not going to change my lifestyle because of the truth. I'm going to keep doing what I want to do. Or the third reason is I just don't care what the truth is. It may matter to you. It doesn't matter to me. Doesn't matter whether it's don't know, don't like, or don't care. Doesn't matter what the reason is. If you reject the truth, it, always, it all has the same consequence. You will act on that, and it will cause destructive behavior. So it really doesn't matter what the reason is. Anytime the truth is rejected, whether it's because I don't know it, I don't like it, or I don't care what it is, it has a consequence. So this is why the love of the truth has got to be the number one objective for any person, but especially for Christians, we have to we have to test everything. Uh, we're told in First Thessalonians, test everything and hold on to what's true. There are so many ideas floating around out there now. We can't just pick and choose. We have to say, wait a minute, got to examine both sides of this. It's going to take me a little work, but I've got to find out what the truth is here. I'm hearing two different networks saying opposite things about the same political event, the same political candidate, the same whatever. They can't both be right. Where's the truth on it? I have to do some work and some research. And so we live in an era where we're into sound bites, we're into memes, we're into really short, short stuff. Um, the, the average, at the time Richard Nixon was elected president of the United States, the average political sound bite covered on national news was 72 seconds. It is now under five seconds. So what we hear about a candidate today is going to be less than five seconds. Well, I need to find out what the truth is because I'm getting somebody's view given me. I need to find out what truth is. So this love of the truth for Christians, particularly for us, we have to start with God's word and with God's son. We're told in John 17, 17, it says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. See, this is where a lot of Christians don't spend time in the word as, as we saw earlier with polling stuff. But it's got to start for, for Christian. You got to start in God's word. And on top of that, then you have to start with God's son. As Jesus said, nobody comes to the father but by me. I'm the only door to get there. So we have that. And Jesus tells us in John 8, 31 and 8, 32, he says, if you'll continue in my word, and that's where truth is, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Now, people love to quote the last part. You know the truth, the truth will set you free. Now, you continue in his word and then you know the truth and then you get set free. It's not just a matter of knowing the truth because, again, truth is relative today. And there's just too many ways to define it. 
truth is defined by what's in his word. And so if you continue in his word, then, and by the way, this we said, if you continue in my word, then you're my disciple, and then you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So when we look at where Christians are today, again, going back to recent polling, this is over the last two months, we know that right now only 14% of Christians read the Bible on a daily basis. Now, it's hard to be grounded in the truth if you don't go to where the truth is. You have to read the truth to know what the truth is. Only 65% of Christians today profess Christianity. Only 65% of Americans profess Christianity. Now, this has taken a plummet. It's down 20 points just in the last few years. So the number of Christians who profess Christianity is way on the, on the downturn right now. So you take 14% of these people that read the Bible. That means only 9% of Americans read the Bible on a daily basis. The polling from two weeks ago shows that only 6% of Americans have a biblical worldview. Only one out of every 16 Americans is able to look at something and see it the way God sees it because they spend time in his word and therefore they can apply it to his word. So having a biblical worldview or having a view of truth granted in his word is something that is a real deficit today. And that's why personal opinion now trumps all truth because we, we no longer have a foundation of truth like we used to have. We're no longer the nation that, that used to be grounded in God's word. And that's why we see so many areas where that we're completely off track now. So I want to take all that foundation and turn to something that's in the news. Just to give you one example of how we apply truth, how we can, and how that it does take some work to be able to do this. I'm going to go to the issue of statues for a bit. This is something that's been in the news for a while. One of the first statues to start coming down was a statue of Christopher Columbus. They came down, people rejoiced. Now, why is Christopher Columbus a bad guy? What does the statue need to come down? If you don't know, you haven't been watching social media, you haven't been watching the memes, etc. Um, like this one, here's one. I don't always celebrate enslavement and genocide, but when I do, it's Columbus Day. I see. Columbus Day is about celebrating enslavement and genocide. Here's another one. Savage. Stop genocide, racism, imperialism. Stop the celebration. Create hope for a new world. See, Columbus Day is all about celebrating genocide and racism and enslavement. That's why the statues are coming down at a rapid rate. You just go across the country, statue after statue of Columbus is coming down. They're being torn down because who wants to celebrate a guy that's, that's enslaved so many and, and genocide and racism? Here's a question to ask. Do you know there are 600 Columbus statues that are erected? Now, we've been celebrating Columbus for over 500 years. So do I make the assumption that every generation before this generation celebrated racism, that there was no one for 500 years that was against racism until this generation, and this is the only generation that's finally gotten it right about who Columbus is. Does that sound logical? No, it does not sound logical. For Christians, we fight racism wherever we see it, anywhere we see it. That's why the abolition movement in America was led by Christians. Christians have always said all men are created equal. Before the Declaration ever said that, Christians were saying that long ago. We know that Paul said that. He said, neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, and Christ were all one. We're told in Acts 17, 26, we're all of one blood. I don't care what color you are. I happen to be 150 the cousin of Adam and Eve, 150. We all came from one parent. So, uh, you know, uh, you may be black, I may be white, you're my cousin. We may be 150th cousins, but we all came from one parent. What's on the outside is not what matters. Christians have always known that. So we're going to make the assumption that everybody got it wrong until this generation. 
maybe there's more to the story than what we know today. And this is where what I do is fun for me. Um, we own more than 120,000 documents from before 1812. I own documents that are 900 years old. I, I own this piece. This is the second piece ever done by Columbus. This is from Columbus's family. It's the record of his journeys. You see, he kept extensive notes, extensive diaries and journals, uh, books that I'm going to show you. Uh, actually, one of America's ambassadors to Spain, when he was in Spain, had he, he went and took and had access to every single record of Columbus, all those who went on the voyages with him, all those who knew about it, all those who funded it, Ferdinand, Isabel. And he wrote this three-volume sit back in the 1820s, more than 200 years ago. This three-volume sit is considered the most extensive, filled with original records of what happened with Columbus. Now, most people have never read that today. They don't know anything about it. But let me, let me see if I can kind of cover some of this. So... What's the history of Columbus? And more importantly, what's the truth about Columbus? This may not be where you agree, but I'm going to give you some truth and see what happens with that. Let's just take this, this truth about Columbus stuff. We start with Columbus. And starting with Columbus, the first question I would ask was, how many voyages did he make? Well, it doesn't matter. They were all races. No, if you don't know how many voyages he made, then you don't even know enough information about Columbus to know whether he was a racist or not. You at least have to know part of the story. I mean, other than the memes, can you give me examples? And most people can't. So let me take you through the four voyages that he made because something different happened on each one. The first voyage is where we have the big painting of the U.S. capital of Columbus landing in the New World. This is 1492. When Columbus landed in the New World in 1492, the first tribe he encountered were called the Taino people. And the Taino people, this is his first experience with people in the New World. Columbus writes about how he loved these people. He said they're the kindest and gentlest people ever. He contacted the king and queen of Spain and said, these people need to be citizens. They need full rights. They need to be citizens of Spain like every other citizen. These are great people. So he had a good relationship with the Tainos, but the Tainos said, look, it's, it's okay between us, but you need to know we're not the only tribe here in this area. There's another tribe you need to be aware of. And he told them about the, what were called the cannabis or the caribs. He's, and, and the Taino said, these guys are cannibals. They eat us. They kill us. They will eat and kill you. And you need to really be careful about these guys. And Columbus kind of blew it off. He said, nah, man, in the civilized age of 1492, who eats anybody? Nobody does that. So he didn't really buy into that, that it happened. And that's in the records. He just didn't believe anybody was that barbaric back at that point in time. And so what happens, he says, I've now got good friends. I'm going to go back to Spain, get some more supplies, come back here, because this is a great place to live, great relationship with these people. As they're getting ready to go, one of his ships runs aground. And because it runs aground, it's not able to sail anymore. And so Columbus says, okay, that crew, you're going to have to stay here, but I'll be right back. I'm just going to get supplies. I'll be back. So they build them a fort for his crew. And then Columbus then sets off for Spain to get more supplies and come back. While he's gone, the cannons and the caribs show up, and they attack his men, and they kill and cannibalize his men. Now, by the, word, by the way, the word cannon, the cannab Indians is where we get the word cannibals, and the word carib is where we get the word Caribbean. So this other tribe that the Tainos warned him about shows up and destroys all of his men and cannibalizes them. Well, Columbus returns, and lo and behold, the fort is gone. It's been attacked and destroyed, and he finds his men. They're still laying on the beach, cannibalized. And so he sees this stuff with his own eyes, and having seen what's there, 
He then goes to the Canaan tribes. He starts looking for the Canaan tribes. When he gets there, he gets into one of the Canaan tribes where he finds Tana women, finds one tribe that has 50 huts of, of Tana, and all he finds is just women in the huts. And it's recorded by the doctor who was with him, Dr. Chavez and others. Columbus says, what are you all doing here? And, and where are the Canaps? And he says, well, they're out on one of their forages. They're out looking for, for tribes and people to conquer. What are you doing here? Well, the, Tana, the, the, the Caribs rape us and all the children we produce, they eat. We're the food farm for the Canaps. And there's 50 huts uh, of Taino women there. And the Taino women explained to Columbus, he said, the Canaps, they love to eat full grown men or they love to eat infants. They don't like children and they, they don't like um, they don't like women. And this is what we recorded. It says, when the Caribbees take any boys as prisoners, they remove their organs, fatten the boys until they grow to manhood. And then when they wish to make a great feast, they kill and eat them. For they say the flesh of boys and women is not good to eat. So this is what Columbus has now learned. He liberates all those women from, from the, the huts there. And then he proceeds to attack the Canaps. Now, he and his men attack the Canaps and... This is the age of conquest. In the age of conquest, we had it through the Bible as well. This is when cultures are so polarized, there is no middle ground. You don't sit down and negotiate. Hey, why don't you guys not eat people as often as you do? Just eat people on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. That'll be a great step. No, we don't do that. This is wrong. That's why in the Bible, when the children of Israel went into Canaan, God says, just wipe them out. That culture is so bad. They sacrifice their kids. They burn their kids in the fire. You, you just, there's no negotiating with this. You just have to replace it. And so what happens is in the age of conquest, there was only two things you could do in the age of conquest. You could kill that enemy. And if you didn't kill them, the ones you didn't kill, you enslaved. And that's it. So... It's enslaving from a justified war where you had the right to kill them because they've destroyed all your people, all your men. They're going after all the other native tribes. The records indicate from the Tainos indicate that the, the Caribbees and the, the Canabs actually depopulated entire islands. They would move into an island. Sometimes they would live there 10 to 15 years before they had eaten all the food off the island. Then they'd go to another island and eat all the people there. So extensive records of all this, this is what Columbus finds. So. When you look, Columbus then returned to Spain, and when he went back to Spain, some of the cannabis that he did not kill, he took with him back to Spain. He said to the king and queen, these, the, I can't believe cannibalism is going on. These are some of the cannibals. <gasps> oh my gosh, people eat people. On that trip back, some Tainos asked to go back with them. Said, can we go back? We'd like to see the king and queen you talk about. Went back with them, and so he took some cannabis to Spain, but he also took Tainos as well. And they became part of the royal court. So when you look at the story of Columbus and genocide, well, it's, it's kind of there. I mean, he, he did go after the cannibals, but what he did was he saved several native tribes in the area that were being eaten and cannibalized by them. And they thought he was a great guy. Several of them volunteered to go with him on his expeditions, wanted to be his translators. They loved Columbus. So we just don't really kind of get the full story today. We only get a part of the story and it's out of context. And when you put it in context, it's really pretty different from what we hear. Now, there's even more than that because we're told that Columbus, all he cared about was gold. It was just greed and gold and that's all that drove him. But maybe there's more to that story like there was to the first part we just covered. So let's deal with that for a little bit and understand 
Columbus and gold, you have to understand the Crusades. And most people today, we cover Crusades in our American history textbook, but not very well. But the things that you should always be able to answer about the Crusades is who was involved with them, where did they occur, and why did they occur? Now, if you look in American textbooks, we'll always hear about the Christian Crusaders. And the Christian Crusades occurred primarily in the Middle East. Some occurred up in Turkey. This is the seven churches of Revelation where Paul went on missionary journeys. And so there's some up there, but primarily in, in the Holy Land. And there were from 13 to 17 different Christian Crusades. And this is where Christians slaughtered all the people and they were barbaric and et cetera. So who were they fighting? Well, the answer is the Muslims. There were Muslim crusades going on. Now, when you look at the Muslim crusades, interestingly, there were 548 of them, only 17 of the Christian ones. How come we study the Christian ones in school and we don't study any of the Muslim ones in school? And when you look at the Muslim ones and where they occurred, and by the way, Muslim crusades were anywhere there are Christians and Jews, we've got to conquer them and throw them out and, and get them out of there. And that's why you find a lot, for example, right here. Now, this Italy area, that's Rome. Paul was at Rome and the church at Rome and the book of Romans, etc. And this is where Columbus grew up. As a matter of fact, as a young boy, he was actually involved in battles against the Muslim crusaders back at that point in time. He's sailing for Spain. Spain is loaded up with all sorts of attacks because that's where Paul ended up and took the gospel to Spain. And so Christians there, so they're attacked. And also the Middle East. You see what happened in the Middle East. All the Christian and Jewish sites in the Middle East got to be conquered. And, and so this is what the Crusades was about. So when you look at that, that's why. And, and one of the traditions of the Muslims is when they conquer something Christian or, or something Jewish, when they conquer the enemy, they will erect a mosque and a minaret on top of where they conquered it. And so that's why if you take a journey across the Holy Land today, all these Christian and Jewish sites will have minarets right in the middle of them. If you go to Caesarea, for example, this is part of the book of Acts. This is part of Paul's missionary journeys. He set sail from right here. This is the Roman harbor he went out of. You see the minarets right there because it was conquered in the, in the Crusades. This Muslims conquered it and they erected a minaret on it. Same if you go to Bethlehem. This is where King David was born, where Jesus was born. It's now a, a Muslim town because they've conquered it. It's got a minaret there. Uh, you see the same thing in Nazareth where Jesus grew up. The same thing with the Temple Mount, sacred to Jews and Christians. It's been conquered. The same thing when you go to Caesarea Philippi. This is where Jesus told the disciples, um, the, the gates of hell will not prevail against. I mean, this, this is all important stuff, and it's all been conquered. So what happens is, with all that's been conquered over here, Columbus writes in his journal, he said, I've talked to the major theologians from Spain, and they all agree that Jesus Christ will be back, back within 155 years. I don't know why 155, but they said all the prophecies have been fulfilled. All the theologians say Jesus will be back within 155 years. He said, when Jesus comes back, I want him to have the Holy Land back in his hands. And so he wanted the goal to finance getting the Holy Land back from the Muslim crusaders, get it back in the hands of Christians and Jews. As he told the king and queen, he says, I wish that all the prophets of this, my enterprise, may be sent in the conquest of Jerusalem. I want to get it back in the hands of Christians and Jews. So he wanted gold all right, but what did he want it for? To get rich and lavish and have a rich lifestyle? No, because he wanted that holy land back in the hands of Christians and Jews. Now, interesting that that's part of it. The other thing is in addition to his journals, he has what's called his book of prophecies. This he did before his fourth journey. 
And he's going through all the scriptures. And if you look here, now this is in Italian, but it's Ezekiel. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 28 and Ezekiel 32 and Ezekiel 34 and Ezekiel 35 and 36. He's reading through the scriptures. This is his journal, what the Lord's showing him as he goes through the scriptures. And so as he points out, I've seen and put in study to look into all the scriptures. Our Lord opened my understanding. I could sense his hand upon me. All those who heard about my enterprise rejected it with laughter, scoffing at me. Who doubts that this illumination from the Holy Spirit? I attest that he, the Spirit, with marvelous rays of light, consoled me through the holy and sacred scriptures. No one should be afraid to take on any enterprise in the name of our Savior if it's right and if the purpose is purely for his service. This is not the way that I see Columbus portrayed today. But see, what we get today is memes and sound bites. We don't go back and actually look at the documents. We don't look at the situations she had to face. What do you do with cannibals who are coming after you and your friends and killed you and your men? Do you just do nothing? Well, he did something. Oh, that's the genocide. He, well, it's a whole different story. So again, when you look at Columbus, the true story is very different from what we get today. Now, Proverbs eighteen seventeen has a great piece of advice. It says, one side sounds good until the other side is heard. This and John 8 is the basis of the Sixth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, which gives you the right to confront your accuser. If you only let the prosecution present their case, we will convict every person as guilty. If you only let the defense attorney present his side of the case, we will acquit everyone as being innocent. You have to look at all the evidence and make a decision. And that's what we're told here. One side sounds great until you hear the other side. Also within that, one of my favorite scriptures in the Bible is Acts 17, 11. It deals with the Apostle Paul. He's on his second missionary journey. On his second missionary journey, he says, I love these guys because they would not believe him. He's the most credentialed apostle in Christianity. He's a Jew of the Jew. He was trained by Gamal. He is a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He knows the scripture better than any other uh, apostle. And he says, I, I love the Bereans. He says, those in Berea are more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily to see whether the things I told them were true. I love these people. They don't believe me. They don't believe me until they've searched the scriptures for themselves. This is Paul saying that. He says, these guys are great. They won't take what I tell. They, they don't go on hearsay. They want to see the evidence for themselves. And see, and we're in a culture of memes and a culture of headline news and a culture of sound bites and a culture of scroll tickers across the bottom of the screen. No, no, no. You have to go see what the evidence is, not see what the hearsay. People have their own viewpoints. They're going to try to, me too. You need to check this. Read this stuff and see what's back there. See why it is that 600 statues were erected to Columbus. See what happened for 500 years that caused people to see them differently than we do today. Go back and see the information. So love of the truth is the biggest thing that we can do. And this is with everything that goes on in the culture. Now, let me take it from that and let's go to what's happening with statues because we're told the statues are coming down because of racism. Now, Particularly Confederate statues are being removed. If you will go online and look for the statues that have been defaced or removed, there are two major lists online, and they list all the Confederate statues. The problem is they only list the Confederate statues. They don't list the rest of the statues. So it's not about racism when you look at the list of what actually happened. Let me see if I can give you perspective. It's really about, I would say, hating America, and here's why. I'm going to show you the, the other side of the story that you've not seen on news. <coughs> Excuse me. The Great Emancipator, and this is a famous painting from back in 1868, and there were two statues made, one in Washington, D.C., and one in Boston. They were paid for by emancipated slaves who said, Lincoln, we want to honor him because this is the guy who finally got us our freedom. And the speech was given to the statues by Frederick Douglass, the great civil rights leader of that era. 
And now those statues are having to come down. The, this was a headline from a week ago. The Boston mayor has now decided it is coming down because that's a racist statue. I'm not sure I understand how Lincoln is racist. You have the same thing. This is in Cleveland. This is the Union Memorial in Cleveland. The Soldiers and Sailors Memorial, that was defaced. That was taken down. Wait, it's Union. That's not Confederate. Well, we've also got Ulysses S. Grant. I think he led the Union forces in defeating the Confederate forces. And he's also the guy who passed all sorts of civil rights laws as president, including the law that prosecuted the Klan for lynchings. Well, we've got to tear him down. We've also got the 54th Regiment, Black Regiment, Civil War Regiment. This was the breakthrough regiment that really first time achieved equality in the military. I actually have the orders that go with that. Back when Lincoln said black and white soldiers are all going to be paid exactly the same. Mass 54. Why are we defacing the Mass 54th Monument? And in the same way. You look here at Oregon, across the Oregon Trail came all these settlers, and when they got to Oregon, they said, we need to be able to educate our young people. Let's start the University of Oregon. Well, now we've got to tear down the founders of the University of Oregon. That's not an issue of race. And now we're told that all statues of Jesus have to come down. They're a gross form of white supremacy, have to tear down the statues of Jesus. Newsflash, Jesus wasn't white. I don't know if anybody knew that. He was not a white guy. Well, no. So all the statues. So what we see is statues of Christians are coming down in California. Junipero Serra, founder of California. Uh, his statue's coming down. Juan de Onate, another Catholic priest who helped out there. His statue's coming down. Uh, the church, St. John's Church, Church of the Presidents in Washington, D.C. burned. And then last week they went after it again. So we're burning down church as well. Uh, this one, this is a memorial to the Armenian genocide. Victims there. Why are we going after a memorial for victims of the Armenian genocide? And how about this one? Museum, New I was just in New York City. Theodore Roosevelt's statue has to come down because it's racist. How's it racist? Because of what he did to Native Americans and what he did to blacks. See the statue with the Native American right there? When Teddy Roosevelt became head of the Rough Riders and was sent to Cuba and fought in, in the Battle of San Juan Hill, when Native Americans found that the Teddy Roosevelt was the commander, Native Americans came and joined the military so they could serve under Teddy Roosevelt. Doesn't seem like they had a problem with Roosevelt. And that's why the statue, they were shown to be good friends. But now it's racist today. And by the way, Teddy Roosevelt is the guy that in 1901 asked Booker T. Washington to come to the White House and eat with him at the White House. No black had ever eaten at the White House before until Teddy Roosevelt did that. It led to national riots. How dare you have a black in the White House? He knew it would. They talked about it before. As a matter of fact, as a result of him eating in the White House with Teddy, he had two assassins that followed him for years trying to kill him. They were hired assassins taken. Teddy Roosevelt and Booker T both knew what was going to happen. when the, But this is the painting that came out in 1901 showing that here's the president who believes he called and we're going to tear his statue down. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. In Washington, D.C., the Lincoln Memorial, the World War II Memorial. Uh, you go to Birmingham, Alabama, the World War I Memorial. If you go to Luth, I love this one, Duluth, Minnesota, they took down the statue of Clayton Jackson McGee. It's a statue to honor the victims of racial lynching. Wait a minute, that's not racist, that's exactly the opposite. Here in Colorado, the Soldiers Monument in Sacramento, the Police Officers Monument, uh, Founding Fathers all have to come down. So signer of the Declaration, Caesar Rodney's got to go, George Washington's got to go, Thomas Jefferson's got to go, Philip Schuler, general in the American Revolution, he's got to go, uh, Kazimir Pulaski, a Polish general in the American Revolution, he's got to go, uh, Louis XVI, don't even know who Louis XVI is today, 
He's the French king who helped fund the American Revolution against Great Britain. That's where we got so many French allies in the French Navy. But he supported the American Revolution. He's got to go. It's got to be taken down. So even the tomb to the unknown soldier of the American Revolution, that's, that's been defaced. That's been attacked. Anything American Revolution's got to go because of racism. That doesn't seem to line up because so much of this is anti-slavery stuff. We're even taking down those memorials. Those don't appear on the list, but that's why I've got pictures of all of them. I have a long list of all these pictures of statues that are coming down. It's not about racism. We're told that. It's about a whole lot more because this doesn't line up with the racism thing. That's just not the issue. As a matter of fact, let me point out, we all know, I feel stupid having to say this. Does everybody recognize the people we honor in statues are not perfect? Everybody knows that? As a Christian, this is a no-brainer. As a Christian, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Everybody is flawed. Everybody is jacked up. Everybody's got issues. There's no, no exceptions to that. Um, we're told once in the Old Testament, once in the New Testament, there's nobody righteous, no, not one. There's no statue that we've ever erected to anybody except Jesus that's perfect. We, we know that. The way you look at heroes, I think, is the way that we look at them in the Bible. If you look at Noah after he got off the ark after the flood. We're told in Genesis 6, 9 that Noah was a righteous man. That's good. And that's why we honor him. Next line. He was a righteous man in his generation. You see, if you read the Bible, Noah had trouble with public drunkenness back then. Yeah, but look at his generation. This is the generation that raped everybody and murdered everybody and stole from everybody. It was so bad, God wiped out the world. He's righteous compared to everything else that was going on in that day. And he, you took, if you took Noah and compared him today, we would find plenty of flaws with Noah. But the question is, did Noah help move the world in the right direction? Yes. And that's what you look at with statues. You know, Washington, did he help move the world in the right direction? Yes. He was flawed. Sure, he was flawed. He's human. But did, he, did Columbus, he had flaws. Did he move the world in the right direction? Yeah. The cannibalism stuff is not part of the Caribbean. An improvement. So you have all the stuff that we recognize in his generation. And that's how we always judge it. Did you help overall move the ball down the court? And by the way, looking at, at the founding fathers, you know, this is the 4th of July stuff. You can't celebrate these guys because they're all a bunch of racists and bigots, slave owners. And that's what we often get told today. And it's interesting that when I put this picture up, 56 hours, I asked kids, I said, Tell me who the slave owners were. I've never had anybody name more than one. Now, sometimes they name slave owners that aren't in this picture. There's about 250 founding fathers. I've never had anybody name four or five, name more than four or five. So we, we can name one here. We can name four or five out of 250, which means they're all racist. Well, how, what do you do with people like Benjamin Rush and Benjamin Franklin, who founded the first abolition society in America in 1774 as an act of civil disobedience against King George III? In 1774, King George III vetoed every anti-slavery law in America. And these guys said, no, we're going to overturn slavery regardless of what the king says. By the way, Benjamin Rush went on to head the national abolition movement. Benjamin Franklin joined with Francis Hopkins, and they started a series of schools for black Americans to teach Christianity and academics because you're not supposed to do that. Great Britain didn't want you teaching black people. That doesn't make them good slaves if they have education. These two guys said, we're going to 
great education. You also have Stephen Hawkins became the first founding father to sign an anti-slavery law. He signed one in 1773, but the King George III vetoed his law. So in 1776, he came back and repassed it because now we're an independent nation. We can't end slavery. You also have folks like John Witherspoon at Princeton University. He's president. He trained black and white students in the founding era. Yes, black and white students. You also have William Ellery did the first national anti-slavery law. James Wilson started the first law school in America. I have his original law books. He said slavery violates God's laws and natural laws. You can't have slavery. So many of these guys were anti-slavery. We don't know. See, the problem is we look at that and all we're told today is a bunch of white guys. That's because we don't know our own history. We don't know who John Moran is. We don't know Wentworth Cheswell, Absalom Jones, William Nell, Prince Estabrook, uh, Lemuel Haynes, uh, James Armistead, Peter Salem, uh, John Chavez, Harry Hoosier, uh, Richard Allen, Benjamin Banneker, Henry Holland Garnett. If we knew all the black guys back in the revolution, it might be real different, but we don't. See, we only cover part of the story, and that's the problem. It was a revolution with all sorts of colors. Women played a very prominent role, more so than we know. So many nations were involved. There were Hispanics involved in the American Revolution, Jewish guys involved, foreign nations got involved. We had so many heroes from so many different areas, and we just don't study them today. And by the way, John Hancock over here, did you know that in 1793 he was holding an equality ball in Massachusetts? Honoring blacks and showing we have equality in Massachusetts. Historians tell us there never was a time when blacks could not vote in Massachusetts. We don't hear that part of the story anymore. We hear all, all, all the racism, and racism did exist. No question about it. As long as you have humans, you will have racism. But when you get Christians involved, they try to take it a different direction. So, so much here that we could point to. America, most people don't know, we were the first nation in the world to ban the slave trade. We did that in 1807. Whoa! 5,500 years of history, and nobody had banned the slave trade until 1807. Abolition is really a new thing in world history. It's only been going for a couple centuries now. We were the fourth nation in the world to end slavery. We ended slavery in 1865. Did you know we're the four, 1865, 150 years ago? We were the fourth nation in the world. There were 124 nations in the world at the time. Now, did you know that today we have 195 nations in the world, and in 94 nations, slavery is still legal today? We're griping about America, and we've got 94 nations that still have slavery today. There are 40 million slaves in the world. I had a national anti-slavery organization. We're considered one of the most active in the world in rescuing Christian slaves, particularly sex slaves, out of the hands of ISIS, etc. Some of our guys have actually been killed going because we literally snatch and grab slaves away from the bad guys. And, and so we know what slavery is, and, and we're, we're jumping all over America when there's 94 nations that still slavery is legal and 40 million slaves, it's a whole different perspective. Well, final thing, we hear so much about these guys who own slaves. What we frequently get is the exception, not the rule. We get a steady flow of negatives about America. When you go back and study history, sure, they're flawed. And they're, about one-fourth of these guys were pro-slavery racists, and there's no excuse for that. But three-fourths of them were anti-slavery guys, and that's the ones that are worth talking about. The other thing, final part, is America's unchristian beginnings. We're also told not only are these guys racists and bigots, they're also a bunch of atheists, agnostics, and deists. The founding fathers were deists who rejected the divinity of Jesus. Uh, the founding fathers were not Christians. Uh, the authors of the Declaration were enemies of Christ. Again, people don't know who they are. When I ask the question, name anybody up here, the only names I've ever gotten from university students are Franklin Jefferson. That's two out of the 56. How about the others? Do you know that 29 of these guys graduated from seminaries and Bible schools? 
more than half these guys were ministry trained. That's why when you take someone like the Reverend John Witherspoon right here, John Witherspoon is responsible for this work right here. This is the first family Bible ever done in American history. That's the original John Witherspoon Bible. It's a family Bible. Witherspoon says this. Witherspoon says, I entreat you in the most earnest manner to believe in Jesus Christ, for there is no salvation in any other. Acts 4.12. If you're not reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, if you're not clothed with the spotless robe of his righteousness, you must forever perish. Now, I will tell you, I'm very impressed that you can get atheists to have that kind of rhetoric. Come on. We're told these guys are atheists, agnostics, deists. No, he's a minister of the gospel. He was trained as a minister as well. Benjamin Rush, he started the first abolition society in America. He also started the first Bible society in America, and he produced the first mass-produced Bible ever done in America. He's a huge Bible society guy. He started the Sunday school movement. You read his writings. He said, my only hope of salvation is the infinite transcendent love of God manifested the world by the death of his son upon the cross. Nothing but his blood will wash away my sins. I rely exclusively upon it. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. That's pretty evangelical. You have the same thing, Roger Sherman, the only founding father to sign all four founding documents. Roger Sherman, also a theologian. Look at some of his statements. He says, God commands all men everywhere to repent. He's also commanded them to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and assured us that all who do repent and believe shall be saved. God has promised to restore eternal blessings on him, on all those who are willing to accept him on the terms of the gospel. That is, in a way, a free grace to the atonement. By the way, look what the newspapers of the day said about him. Newspaper from the day says, Roger Sherman, the volume which he consulted more than any other was the Bible. It was his custom at the commencement of every session of Congress, he's a longtime congressman, to purchase a copy of the scriptures, to bruise it daily, and present it to one of his children on his return. New Bible, every year he goes to Congress, he marks it all up with what God shows him, gives it to one of his kids. By the way, had to be in Congress a long time to do that because he had 15 kids. So that means you've got to read through the Bible a whole lot to do that. Roger Sherman did. Uh, one other example, Charles Carroll of Carrollton. He is a signer of the Declaration, lived to be 95 years old when the average lifespan back then was 33 years old. He outlived everybody. And he was asked by one of his family members, they said, Charles, you will die someday. And when you do die, are you ready to meet God? This is his handwritten reply. This is what he wrote. This is the letter. You see it right here. Whoops, I have it upside down. You see it right here. It's 1825. So he's 89 years old at the time. Are you ready to meet God when you die? He said, of course I am. Right here. He says, on the mercy. See right there. It says, on the mercy. He says, on the mercy of my Redeemer, I rely for salvation. Not, and on his merits. Not on any works I've done obedience to his precepts. That's Ephesians 2, 8, 9. By grace you saved through faith. See, I can show you so much about the faith of the founders, and we're told they're atheists, agnostics, deists. By the way, Charles Carroll was also the final signer of the Declaration passed away. After everybody else had died, he's the last one left. New York City sent him a copy of the original Declaration of Independence. This is the one printed on July the 4th. It didn't have signatures back then. And they said, we want you to write your final thoughts about America because you're the last guy left alive who helped form this. This is what he wrote in the Declaration. I'm grateful to Almighty God for the blessings which, through Jesus Christ our Lord, he's conferred on my beloved country. I can't thank God enough for what he's done for America through Jesus Christ. This is not the way we picture these guys today, but that's what the historical evidence is. So are they enemies of Christ? No. And we never would have said that in any previous generation to today. It's because we don't know our history. We used to. This is actually a textbook we used in public schools for years. We studied all 56 signers of the Declaration. We knew where they were on race issues, on faith issues, on all the issues. Same with their wives. We even studied the wives. They were great what the wives did was terrific. So when we talk about July the 4th today, it actually is something we can celebrate. It's not the evil guys that we're told about. It's not founded on slavery. Like we're, It's just not, not true. 
Now, there's some fact that there's definitely facts that, yes, slavery did exist, racism did exist, but it didn't exist everywhere. It existed in some states in the South. It didn't exist in, in most states. We, we freed slaves before any other nation. Uh, we're actually fourth for freeing slaves, but the first in the slave trade. So we've always been right up top. So America is worth celebrating. Uh, happy birthday, America. And by the way, if you're interested in any of this kind of stuff, we've got a lot of materials you can go to on our website, the American story. This is all history that we haven't been taught in 30, 40 years, but it's all history that's documented. Founders Bible. We have various apps. We have all sorts of stuff. If you're interested in the materials, if you put in the code of Florida 2020 on the website, 20% off anything, we would normally have those materials here that you could look at. But with COVID and everything else, you just have to go to the website. But thank you guys for letting me share. Hope you enjoy America. We've been blessed in a way that few other nations have. God bless you guys. Thank you for watching with us today. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please email us at info at crossingonline.org. And myself or one of the other pastors will get back with you as soon as we can. God bless you. And remember, together, we are crossing.